Snow to the north, flooding to the south. Storms close in on the Lone Star State with dangerous implications. We've got our eyes on the skies today on The Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. We'll have the latest on weather warning statewide. Also, a man in a jail cell in Odessa may be one of the most prolific serial killers in history. Why did it take so long for authorities to catch him? Also, why Texas appears to have become ground zero for a cryptocurrency crackdown. And challenging assumptions, one of the most comprehensive profiles of Latinos ever. All those stories and a whole lot more when the Texas Standard gets started right after this. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this December 6th. Thanks so much for spending a bit of your Thursday with us. I'm David Brown of the Texas capital city out in Houston. 1,200 mourners expected as they lay the 41st president to rest today, bringing six days of mourning to a close. The body of President George Herbert Walker Bush will be transported by train to College Station for burial alongside his wife, Barbara, and his daughter, Robin. Mr. Bush died on Friday at age 94. The weather is expected to hold out just long enough, it appears, but then forecasters say much of the Lone Star State, from one end of Texas to the other, will get hit with severe storms and large amounts of rainfall starting late today and continuing in some places into the weekend, some of it expected to be severe. Up north, there are warnings of snow and ice. Down south, extremely heavy downpours and the possibility of tornadoes in some areas. Right now, it's looking like the worst conditions could be up in the panhandle, where precipitation could mix with freezing temperatures, making travel treacherous. But did I say those were the worst conditions? Well, look at this. Torrential rain, likely in a zone that covers much of southeast Texas, in a loop that runs from almost Del Rio in the west up to San Antonio in that area, across I-10 out to the Gulf, and stretching down to include Victoria Kingsville, and again running out to the coast south of Corpus Christi. Victor Murphy is with the National Weather Service Southern Region Headquarters, based in Fort Worth, and he's been watching these storms develop. Victor, welcome back to the Texas Standard. Thank you, David. Heavy rains, I guess, uh, heaviest expected to hit the Houston area in the next 24 hours or so. How much are we uh, are we talking about here, and what kind of concerns uh, are there about flooding? Yeah, well, well David, usually, um, in general, you know, from a weather perspective, you know, there's four main impacts, you know, to be concerned about, you know, severe thunderstorms, you know, with large hail, tornadoes, heavy rain, and, and, and wintertime, of course, snowfall. Uh, the severe thunderstorm threat uh, slash, you know, hail threat and tornado threat is pretty minimal from this event. Don't really think that's going to be the big issue. But uh, there will be some significant rainfall totals um, across a lot of Texas. There's flash flood watches out right now from about the Corsicana area southward through along I-45 through to Houston, down to the Corpus Christi area, or Rockport or so, then out westward to the hill country. And the flash flood watch area does include major metro areas like Houston, Austin, San Antonio, Waco and Colleen. So uh, that's going to be the focus. Uh, uh, the main concern is going to be the heavy rainfall. Uh, the lighter rain should start today already, but the heavier rain should begin late tonight, continue through Friday night, 
and tapering off on Saturday. But we're looking for three to six inches of rainfall in that flash flood uh, watch area. Three to six inches. That's pretty serious, uh, of course, and especially so when you're talking about the ground that's already uh, fairly well saturated. I had heard that there might be uh, a precipitation uh, of up to 10 inches in some areas. Has that been scaled back or, or no? Well, um, we're looking for a pretty, you know, pretty widespread, you know, three to five or three to six inches of rainfall. So there, you know, when you have, whenever you have widespread amounts of that magnitude or that amount, you're going to see some isolated totals that, are, that exceed that. So yes, there probably will be some eight to ten inch amounts isolated here and there, but it's pretty much impossible to just, you know, to say exactly where. But in general, that flash flood area, which I, you know, defined, would be the uh, the area of concern for, you know, any these rainfall amounts, say up to eight inches or up to ten inches. What can people do when you hear these sorts of reports and these warnings? I mean, you know, I was thinking about the folks who were uh, along uh, the Llano River uh, where they experienced enormous flooding uh, in the hill country earlier this year, just a few weeks ago, to be, uh, to be honest. Uh, wh- what do you do when you hear about these, these uh, warnings? You know, ordinarily, you never think about things like this, but this is one of those events where you need to have a plan. Okay, what if? You know, what if we do get five inches of rainfall, um, say a 12 or 24 hour period? You know, let's let's not be out on the highways needlessly, say, during the, you know, Thursday night, Friday, Friday night period. You know, if we can do anything, do it today or else just, you know, hold off, do it afterwards. So, um, you know, hunker down in general. No need to be out on the roads if, unless you have to be. And, and the second thing would be to listen to your local weather service uh, office watches and warnings and also your local officials. Uh, any possibility that this might lead to evacuations at some point or too early to say? It's probably too early to say. Um, I think the main concern is going to be the flood threat, you know, flash flood threat, you know, short term, like I said, say tomorrow and tomorrow night mainly. Um, but then uh, some of the heavier amounts that fall from the river basins, we could see some river flooding, you know, maybe ongoing through the weekend or early next week or so, especially in the, in the larger in the larger rivers. Of course, in the hill country, it's pretty much all flash flooding. So anything that happens there, would probably be, you know, during the event. And that's where people really need to have a plan. Is there a, a, a meteorological connection between what's happening up in the Panhandle and what we're seeing down in southeast Texas? I mean, is there a single weather pattern that's creating these conditions? Well, yes, it's the same uh, weather system. Uh, surface low pressure is, is forecast to develop around the Houston area um, tomorrow uh, into uh, Saturday. And just a, a cool air in place, a stationary front, you know, Gulf moisture riding over that. And, um, you know, we've been talking about the heavy rain. But the uh, Texas Panhandle's got a different threat. Basically, from the Lubbock area northward, we're looking at about three to six inches of snowfall and perhaps mixed in with some freezing rain. So once again, under the heading of have a plan, if you have any travel plan, you know, through the Texas Panhandle, obviously you want to get that done today. You don't you don't be out driving around the Texas Panhandle, say, tomorrow or, or through Saturday. It's going to be a very busy 24 to 48 hours for Victor Murphy and his team with the National Weather Service Southern Region Headquarters in Fort Worth. Victor, thank you so much for taking a few minutes out of your day to talk with us on The Standard. Thank you, David. Right now, a 78-year-old man named Sam Little is sitting in a jail cell in Odessa. He's awaiting trial there for the 1994 murder of an Odessa woman named Denise Christie Brothers. But he says he is responsible for many more killings, and police believe him. 
Little has confessed to over 90 murders, more than 30 of which have been corroborated across over a dozen states, which would make him one of the most prolific serial killers in history. Here to talk about the case, Bobby Bland. He's joining us from Odessa, where he is District Attorney for Ector County. District Attorney Bland, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thanks for having me. Assuming these claims by Sam Little are in fact true, I mean, several of these are cold cases, some dating back to the 1970s. How is it possible for him to have eluded police for so long? Well, he killed vulnerable women, women that that, um, uh, were on the fringes of society. Uh, he was able to take advantage of, of them and their situation and, and uh, isolate them and kill them. Was there a specific breakthrough that created an opportunity for, for Little to be brought to justice? Well, uh, he was found guilty in California, in Los Angeles, of three different murders. Uh, they were cold cases from the 80s. And uh, he was uh, sentenced to life on each one of them. And the appeals had been exhausted in those cases. So a Texas Ranger named James Holland uh, went out there to talk to him. He had information from the FBI and uh, different law enforcement agencies from around uh, the country uh, at hand. And so he was familiar with his case and what he was suspected of doing. He was able to get in there and make the breakthrough and, and talk to him and get him to, to start talking about these cases. Ninety murders, though, that's an exceptionally high number. Is there any reason to believe that Little may be uh, fabricating uh, some of these stories? No. In fact, none of them have, found to be, have been found to be false. The law enforcement agencies aren't giving him the information. He's telling us about these crimes. And then what's happening is we're taking that information and contacting the law enforcement agency uh, in that area and mm-hmm. finding out that they have a murder or a body that matches that description. And the details are so specific that it, he has to be the killer. Uh, how, what accounts for, for why he would do this? Is he Has he given any clues as to motive? You know, I don't, I, I can't speak to why someone would do this. I mean, to kill this many people in, in such a horrible way uh, over such a long period of time, I don't think anybody can really speak to that. Uh, all I know is that uh, he did it, and now he's starting to be held accountable, and we're getting answers for these victims. What have you heard from the victims' families? Uh, well, I've only talked to the local ones here, and I don't want to get into the specifics of them, but we have conveyed uh, what's going on in the case. Uh, They're obviously uh, glad to get answers. And the main thing is, you know, this case has allowed us to get answers for, for uh, families all across this nation. Since this has gone public, several other cases have been solved, so it's been gratifying. We've been hearing from victims and law enforcement from around the country. If he were not coming forward and talking to you, would you have a tough time making a case against him at this point? Oh, yeah. That's what broke the case. You know, there there was some corroborating evidence gathered at the time in our case, and that's the same way with a lot of these cases. There's descriptions or, or information that kind of matches up uh, little at the time. But in the end, it's his statements that are uh, what are closing these cases out. I wonder why he's now talking after all this time. Well, his appeal, he had gotten, he'd been caught. He had a life sentence. All his appeals had been exhausted. And um, James Holland went in there and made sure he took advantage of that. 
and uh, built up a relationship with him so that he could continue to get these answers. Bobby Bland is District Attorney of Ector County. That's the home county to Odessa. Bobby, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. Well, thanks for having me. So what are Texans talking about on this Thursday? Let's check in with social media editor Wells Dunbar. Is there a link back to the show's top story weather on the mind of many Texans? The mm-hmm. hashtag TXWX is where they're talking about Texas weather on Twitter as the panhandle could see snow this weekend while flash flooding is possible in the Houston region. We asked our friends and listeners if they're ready for any rough weather via our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Texas Standard. There, Gabriella Trunkman says, yes, I'm staying at home with my children. Meanwhile, Tom Snell turns the tables. He says the real problem would be heavy snow in Houston and intense flooding in the panhandle. Don't think that's very likely, however. Mm. That's just one story we're following on social media today, David. Also keeping an eye on the Houston funeral for former President George H.W. Bush. I'll be back with more from social media later in the show. What's on your news radar, Texas? Reach out to us, won't you? On Twitter, at Texas Standard. Join the conversation on Facebook. Wells Dunbar is looking for you, and he's going to be back with us in 35 minutes or so here on The Standard. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, partnering with SAP to deliver business-by-design supply chain solutions for cost transparency and process integration in mid-market companies. More at softwareaspromised.com. You got to tune to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. One in five people over the age of 60 have a mental or neurological disorder. The World Health Organization says many of these illnesses go undiagnosed or untreated. As part of our Spotlight on Health project, Rebecca Moore brings us the story of one North Texas man. It's a chilly morning with a light drizzle coming down at Doug Delaney's North Dallas home. The 69-year-old describes it as a funky McMansion with a sprawling garden of cacti, trees, and wild grasses covering the entire backyard. That's a chinaberry tree. Those are chinaberry branches. I just brought them in just for sculptural effect. So anyway, I just play with it. Delaney is an avid gardener and baseball lover. He enjoys going to church on Sunday mornings and lounging around the house with his dog, Peanut. Outwardly, he seems to be the picture of health. Inside, he struggles. The difficulty with mental illness is that many times it doesn't manifest. I mean, people look at me and they'd say, nothing's wrong with Delaney, you know? I mean, he gets up, he goes about his business, he goes to bed, he gets up the next day. Delaney has lived with depression and bipolar disorder since his 20s and was finally diagnosed in his 40s. He says he's learned to cope over the years with the help of gardening, medication, and therapy, but it took a while for him to get here. There were times when I felt like I'd just fallen into a deep, dark hole and was slogging around in wet concrete when I wasn't. Mental health problems are largely underdiagnosed and undertreated in adults 60 and over. One explanation is that mental disorders often accompany physical health problems. Dr. Charles Harley is a psychiatrist and the director of the Geriatric Behavioral Unit of Medical City North Hills in North Richland Hills. We have several people up here that live alone in a independent living setting. Their their spouses died. I mean, they're pretty lonely. You've got to somehow overcome that. If they don't, that's when problems can arise. 
it can set off a, a cascade of illnesses, chest pain, stomach pains, stress-related symptoms, and then clinical depression. The process can also work in reverse. Untreated depression can worsen heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, and other health problems. That hasn't been Doug Delaney's experience, but he did suffer for more than 20 years before seeking treatment. I, I may have felt like I could deal with it, that it was, yes, it was there, but I could manage it. Stigma also plays a large role in the treatment of older adults with mental illness. Philip Baden is a professor of social work at the University of Texas at Arlington. His research interests include the social factors that determine mental health. There is a general perception that it's okay to seek services for general health functioning, but when it comes to mental health, there's a huge stigma that they're supposed to be resilient and deal with it. He says if people would talk about mental health and support their older adult friends and family, it would help eliminate the stigma. That kind of support from family was key for Delaney. I feel tremendous gratitude that I don't have to struggle with the lows that I experienced earlier in life. I have particular issues that have led to a very interesting journey. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It's been, it's been a very interesting ride. A ride he hopes to be on for a while. For The Texas Standard, I'm Rebecca Moore. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, as you probably know, keeps an eye on banking and markets. Well, the SEC filed charges having to do with cryptocurrency last week against two men who aren't investment bankers or tech bros, but celebrities. Hip-hop producer DJ Khaled and boxer Floyd Mayweather settled felony charges. They encouraged fans to invest in initial Bitcoin-style offerings without disclosing that they were being paid to do so. This is the first case of its kind in just the latest blow for the once high-flying cryptocurrency market. Tech maven Omar Gayaga is here to give us a primer on just what is going on with crypto. Hey there, Omar. Hey, David. Uh, you know, I guess a lot of people once upon a time said, gee, I wish I had made those investments in Bitcoin and such back in the days when they were going for, what, $800? And then they went up to twenty, almost 20000 Oh, right? that was me. <laughs> I was like, oh, this seems very complicated and probably not worth the effort. And then, yeah, it went up to like close to about $19,783 yeah. almost a year ago. So yeah. now it's back down to somewhere in the range of three, dollars $4,000 depending on the day uh last i checked it was about 3600 um, yeah. up, up slightly from a low of like 3500 this year but that's but that's the good stuff i mean because there are a lot of uh i, I suppose you could call them investment opportunities and that's very loosely stated <laughs> uh that claim to be cryptocurrency as well sort of bitcoin emulators i guess you could yeah say. i mean there is bitcoin proper and then there's bitcoin cash and then there's all these other uh, you know kind of novelty cryptocurrencies uh anybody you know, can can create their own uh, cryptocurrency, can create their, you know, you have Dogecoin and Kodak made a, a mm -hmm. cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. The problem is uh, with the SEC now being involved is that if you have influencers or celebrities, uh, you know, telling you, hey, this is a great investment, I'm I'm in it, you know, I'm Floyd, you know, crypto Mayweather and I'm yeah. investing yeah. in this, yeah. you know, that, that kind of goes against the laws of, of, you know, promoting securities. And it gets to the heart of 
are these securities? Can you call them securities? And if so, then are they regulated by those same rules that would apply to stocks? And, and apparently they are because these people are being fined. Just to lay it out for folks who, don't, who aren't familiar, what is an initial coin offering? What does that mean, basically? Uh, it is a, just as I described that you know anyone can create a cryptocurrency. That's what it is. Uh, and you know, and you can name it whatever you want. You can name it after your company. Okay. And, and you know, there was this big flurry of activity the last couple of years over this this idea of that that these could be as big as Bitcoin, but none of them have have kind of but, Ethereum is the closest that's come to a legitimate you know Bitcoin competitor. But I think that one of the things that makes this rather innovative in terms of the way the SEC is approaching this, these celebrities were promoting these uh, alternatives to Bitcoin using their Instagram accounts, right? They were, and I, I believe DJ Khaled might might have been on Snapchat. Actually, we should say DJ Khaled. I think we're legally required to to holler his name when we say it. So DJ Khaled. <laughs> okay, there you go. You, uh, you did. He, it. I think he was doing it on Snapchat. But yeah, the, the whole thing is, I think this is a warning shot. I mean, we're talking about a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. This is not huge money, but I think it's a warning shot to other celebrities and influencers, influencers saying, you know, you can't do this. You can't promote these things. Uh, you know, like you would uh, Noxima or whatever, you know, or another yeah. product. These are, you know, securities. Uh, well, they are and they aren't, I suppose, because some of these things don't, they don't register as secure. Texas has been especially aggressive in terms of trying to get a grip on uh, these uh, uh, opportunities that uh, call themselves cryptocurrency. Yeah. And I, and I think in, in Texas, they're definitely are looking at it like, is this fraud? You know, are they trying to bilk people? Are they trying to get people mm-hmm. to rush into this, you know, and suggest that it's the same as Bitcoin uh, when it's really could be just this fly by night thing that somebody had, you know created in their basement. So Texas, it feels like they're playing kind of whack-a-mole with all these, you know, small things that pop up and trying to kind of send cease and desist. Uh, but there are some, you know, very legitimate companies that are coming out of this too. And and I think it's sending jitters through sort of the whole blockchain industry. Of well, like, you, you mentioned something interesting there, legitimate, right? Because some investment banks have even gotten into trading cryptocurrencies and yet you do have some fraudsters out there. Yeah. I mean, when anyone can create the, a, a, a currency of their own, what is legitimate? So I think the SEC is struggling with that. I think Texas is struggling with that. And I think celebrities are just like, oh, it's just another product that I can, you know, get paid Hype. to promote. Yeah. So. Uh, so what do you think uh, this means? Floyd Mayweather and DJ Khaled, uh, the, the fact that they have to pay these big fines, sort of a warning shot over the bow of some of these uh, folks? Oh, the, yeah. They have to not only pay back the money they were paid, they have to pay fines and interest. Like, it is a bad deal for them. So I'm sure they're looking at their social media going, yeah, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah, let's think twice. Uh, maybe those who want to invest in such things need to think twice as well. Omar Guy keeps an eye on all things tech over at techminutetexas.com. Thanks for getting us caught up. We sure do appreciate it. Thanks, David. DJ and, Collins. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk with you again next week. Coming up on 29 Minutes Past the Hour, Texas Standard Time. Texas Roundup is just around the corner. Stick around. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. A civil rights group is suing the Texas Department of Public Safety over its driver responsibility program, saying it unnecessarily pushes low-income drivers into debt. The program automatically suspends a person's license if they fail to pay fines on time for traffic citations, such as driving without insurance or a valid license, and yearly surcharges worth hundreds or thousands of dollars are added on top of the initial fines. Those surcharges are at the 
crux of the lawsuit the group Equal Justice Under Law filed Wednesday in a San Antonio court. Phil Telfian is executive director of the D.C.-based nonprofit. The surcharges in some cases can be more than the fine for the traffic offense itself, and they continue for three years. The group argues more than 1.4 million Texans have had their licenses unconstitutionally suspended under this program. And while there is financial assistance available to low-income drivers, Telfian says these programs aren't promoted or accessible. Someone who's making below 125 percent of the federal poverty line is entitled to have these surcharges waived completely. Unfortunately, the Department of Public Safety has made it virtually impossible to access those waivers. The program was launched in 2003 to compel offenders to pay fines, plus the extra revenue was used to fund trauma centers in rural areas. Both a Democratic and Republican state senator have already filed bills ahead of the 2019 legislative session to repeal the program. The PGA of America is moving its headquarters from Florida to Frisco, Texas. This week's announcement comes after several groups, including the Frisco City Council and Frisco Independent School District, approved their part in the $520 million public-private deal. As KERA Stella Chavez reports, students will benefit from the move. The project will include two championship golf courses and a nine-hole practice course. Plans also call for a 500-room hotel and a 127,000-square-foot conference center. Under the agreement, Frisco ISD students will be allowed to train at the facility. The school district will get to host golf tournaments there and have access to the clubhouse and hike and bike trails. Officials say the golf courses could open by summer 2022. Stella Chavez, KERA News. A U.S. Border Patrol supervisor has been charged with capital murder, and a South Texas district attorney is seeking the death penalty. 35-year-old Juan David Ortiz was arrested in September and confessed to murdering four women. Webb and Zapata County District Attorney Isidro Alaniz says Ortiz targeted sex workers. The scheme in this case, from Ortiz's own words, was to clean up the streets of Laredo. Ortiz was with the Border Patrol for 10 years. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas. Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from Fort Lonesome, Texas-based chain-stitch embroidery design and tailor-made custom western wear on Instagram and at ftlonesome.com. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention now reports 134 cases of that mystery polio-like illness found mainly in children, patients average age about five years old. It's called acute flaccid myelitis, but with no clear cause, the CDC has formed a task force to try to find answers. Texas and Colorado appear to have the most cases. And frightening as this is, officials hasten to add it is exceedingly rare. Nothing like a far more common illness that hit Texas and much of the rest of the world in 1918. As Texas Public Radio's Bonnie Petrie reminds us, the Spanish flu virtually shut down whole cities a century ago. Louis Edward Mayberry moved to San Antonio in 1918. He was 11 years old. I started school, and just a few days, they had a, a flu epidemic in San Antonio, and they turned the schools out. Mayberry's oral memoirs were recorded in 1987, and he remembered clearly the time the thriving modern city stopped everything as flu ravaged its residents. And then uh, school started again, and it went on for a couple of weeks, and they turned out again. 
We didn't get much schooling before Christmas. Spanish flu snuck up on San Antonio. The focus of most Americans in the fall of 1918 was the Great War, what we now call World War I. Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. But by late August and early September, soldiers in Europe started getting sick. Then soldiers back in the U.S. started getting sick, including those at Camp Travis. Dr. Ana Martinez-Katzum teaches history at the University of Texas of the Permian Basin. She's from San Antonio, and she wrote and published the article, desolate streets, the Spanish influenza in San Antonio. Between September 19th and 20, there were flu-like cases at Camp Travis. And so the doctors reported this as the flu. Of course, rumors started to spread that it was influenza, and military officials wanted to reassure the city that it wasn't. But it was, and by the time the military acknowledged it, it was too late. It was everywhere. Travis was hit, Fort Sam Houston, Kelly, and so it was at the military bases. And it's on October 1st that military officials pretty much quarantined the military installations. Enlisted men could not visit San Antonio. San Antonio City Health Officer Dr. William Anthony King had been monitoring the situation at the military installations, but he didn't think it was a big deal, and he didn't think his city was at risk of an epidemic. San Antonio was known as a health destination. Uh, had a cleanup campaign, a few mild cases of the flu, but they didn't believe that it would be severely hit by the influenza, or if anything, they could limit it. But that's not how the flu works. And by the time King and the Board of Health decided on October 16th to close the schools, churches, lodges, and theaters, and to ban public gatherings, the epidemic was already reaching its peak. Three days later, doctors reported 700 new influenza cases in just one day. And people were dying. You have a number of children who pass away within the same family. You have a mother and a child. You have a father and a mother. So what often happened is because it's so highly contagious, several members within the family got sick and several members passed away. So why was this flu so virulent and so deadly? Dr. Jean Patterson at Texas Biomedical Research Institute explains. I think it was a combination of things. There was no antibiotics. People were um, more stressed and less healthy than they are normally. And it was a very virulent influenza that people hadn't seen before, so there was no, nobody had antibodies to it. By at least one estimate, by the time the flu was done with San Antonio, 53% of the population got sick. 881 people died. Even though Spanish flu killed 51 million people around the world, it was still just the flu. Patterson says influenza kills an average of 36,000 people in the United States every year, and a virulent flu like the 1918 strain could strike again in any year. But Patterson says we're better prepared for an influenza pandemic now because, among other things, the Centers for Disease Control and other organizations keep an eye on the different influenza strains circulating the globe, and every year there's a new vaccine. And even during a year when the vaccine doesn't exactly match the circulating strains, it still helps. Because you have a little bit of an immune response to different parts of the flu, and your body is ready to go. You're not going to protect yourself entirely, but you're going to have some, some resistance to the influenza. Patterson says the holy grail for people like her is a universal flu vaccine that covers all strains of the flu. I think we're, we're closer. I mean, we, we really have some good people and some good ideas out there, but that is really what would really be incredible. And with that hope, perhaps this history won't repeat itself. In San Antonio, I'm Bonnie Petrie for the Texas Standard. Are coming.
Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horn frogs strive to be a force for the greater good, like Dr. Kyle Walker, who uses data mapping and open source software to help organizations serve at-risk communities. TCU, lead on. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Do people really give up on love? By the time Connie Robinson hit 49, she says she'd pretty much given up. She'd been married to a person she describes as not the right partner. But one day, she decided to give it one more chance. She was at one of those online match sites and found herself intrigued by a man whose profile stated he had one month to live. In our latest installment of From Heel to Toe, stories about Texans in their boots, Connie Robinson shares her love story. We were almost 150 miles from each other. We met in the middle, and it was at like a Denny's. And we met for uh, coffee after breakfast, and then we had lunch, then we had more coffee, then we had dinner, then we had more coffee, and then we had to go home to our, our respective homes. But we had each fallen hard in love for each other. But I had already accepted a contract to move to New Mexico and his doctors told him he only had one month left to live anyway, so we didn't think much of that. And we were married in my aunt's garden in Roswell. The, his uh, echocardiogram was so bad that one time a poor technologist stopped and erased it three times before he said, it's not gonna get any better. <laughs> and we had 11 and a half of the best fun years anyone could ever have. Well, when we were married, he wanted to be all westered up, so we went to a, a place. He goes, now, I've never had boots to, that could fit me. And I said, uh, what, like this pair here? And I got out a pair of Tony Llamas, and they fit him like a glove. And he was so handsome in a western vest and, and bolo tie. God, he's a good-looking man. Had to be a God thing for me to be so in love with a fat old white guy. And an accent. Oh, he had a, he was from South Carolina. It had an accent like molasses. Oh, there's a great flea market down on uh, south of San Antonio on Highway 16. We love to just go there and walk around. And at one of the stalls, there was uh, a vendor that had all kinds of uh, Mexican handmade boots. And there was a pair of embroidered boots that I really admired. Kind of a cafe brown boot. Embroidered from the tip of the toe to the top of the shaft in all kinds of small flowers. And the flowers are pink and yellow and there's green vines going all up the toe and around the heel, and then all on the shaft as well. And he just pulled out his credit card and said, well, hon, they're yours. I'm going to buy them for you now. And I could, why? You know, there's no occasion. Now, this, this was in October of uh, 
2014. And he said, well, I'm going to get them for you now because who knows where I'll be at Christmas. Well, November 24th he passed. Oh, they are just beautiful. <sighs> yep, I was loved. Everyone deserves to be loved like that once. Connie Robinson, remembering her late husband, Tom, a man who loved her so he decided the last thing he'd do before he died was fix her taillights. And he did. Send us your story of love and remembrance. Make sure there's some boots in there, too. Our address, Standard at kut.org. Out on the Texas-Mexico border in the Big Bend, there's a cave called Spirit Eye. It was once home to prehistoric people, and over time, the artifacts they left behind have been taken. Well, now, as Marfa Public Radio's Diana Wynn reports, archaeologists are teaming up with unlikely collaborators to track some of these objects down. Getting to Spirit Eye takes a while. On the rocky, dusty ride there, archaeologist Brian Schroeder talks about the research he's been doing. He works for the Center for Big Bend Studies at Sol Ross. I never, ever thought I would do so much sleuthing. <laughs> He's been following clues and tracking down artifacts taken from the cave. Things like baskets, sandals, and corn. A lot of really important stuff is in people's houses. Schroeder's combed through letters and photographs, evidence that Spirit Eye has been looted for several decades. Tracking down these items in this manner is not the most conventional way to study archaeology. If we don't talk with them, then, then we're not going to get access to any of that stuff, and we're, we're going to miss a big chunk of prehistoric people's lives. But who lived here? That's what Schroeder and his crew are trying to figure out. Right now, they don't really know because the research is in such early stages. But he has identified different time periods when people lived in the cave, going as far back as about 5,000 years. This site was clearly important to prehistoric folks, so it deserves at least that treatment. To get into Spirit Eye, a looter, or what Schroeder at times carefully calls collectors, would have to walk up a steep slope. Once inside, you can't help but marvel at it. It's the kind of cave you'd imagine exploring as a kid. Oh, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You walk through a triangle-shaped corridor that opens into a larger chamber. From there, there's a narrower shaft that goes all the way to the back of the cave. And Schroeder and his crew are here today to see if looters missed anything good. They don't know it's wrong. They're interested in the history, and that's why they want to go out and dig that. That's Erica Blecka, another archaeologist working on the project. Because the cave is on private land, a slew of different people has either trespassed onto the property or were allowed to dig by the various landowners over the years, like families, border patrol agents, a barber, some guys from Colorado, and even a USDA cattle inspector. And there might be other looters Schroeder and his team don't know about. That's what we as archaeologists have to understand is they don't understand that they're doing anything wrong. At least some of them don't. And there are differing opinions on whether or not archaeologists should collaborate with looters, collectors, or whatever you want to call them. But as Schroeder's dug deeper into Spirit Eye's history, he's realized he doesn't have much of a choice. See, beyond artifacts being taken, people have also been removed from the cave. And that raises ethical concerns for him because they need to be properly taken care of. You can't really walk away from that. We need to... We need to figure out where those are and do the due diligence and put them back to the cave. He knows of at least three bodies that were taken from Spirit Eye. One of them, a Californian bought for $4,500 in the late 80s. 
It was listed in the back of a gun magazine. The man who made the purchase, he was eventually investigated for exotic animal trafficking. That's when authorities found the remains in a terrarium on the ground. Now the body is at UT Austin. This is really bizarre. This is really bizarre. (laughs) The body was found by a group of men who regularly dug the cave in the 60s. They paid the landowner at the time $2 per person to access Spirit Eye. When the group stumbled upon the burial, they realized they were doing something wrong and sought help by writing archaeologists around the state. But because the site is so remote and archaeological resources so scarce, Spirit Eye largely went unresearched until now. We can learn a lot at these sites if we don't walk away from them. I think that in and of itself is a pretty big finding to the archaeological community. Erica Blecka, who you heard from earlier, says taking time to understand Spirit Eye inhabitants sheds light on our own roots. You have to learn from your past in order to go forward. And people were living in this environment long before us. And, and understanding our, our past and a sense of place gives you perspective. Perspective, something these archaeologists hope to glean as they continue to sift through artifacts, carefully telling the story of the people who roamed the desert before us. In Spirit Eye Cave, I'm Diana Wynn. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. This is the Texas Standard. Say you want to know more about a topic. You could ask an expert or just string together your observations, assumptions, and what you may have heard others say on the subject and just go with that. Well, the latter option happens far too often, especially when it comes to Latinos in the U.S. Just ask Dr. Gabriel Acevedo. He teaches sociology at St. Mary's University, and he notes that lots of people, from political scientists to strategists to marketers, to name just a few, would like to know how to better target Latinos, but instead of asking them directly, a host of misconceptions are just perpetuated. So, at the request of a group called the Austin Institute of Family and Culture, Acevedo created a much more authoritative profile of Latinos, a much more nuanced profile, based on responses from 2,500 self-identified Hispanic Latinos, assembling a report titled, Latinos in America. Dr. Gabriel Acevedo, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you so much, David. Great to be here. There's a wealth of information in these 50 pages uh, that you've assembled, but I want to focus on three. One thing... Uh, that I think may surprise some is that when analysts use the word evangelicals to describe a group of people in the U.S., I think most of us think of, uh, for instance, the uh, uh, the preacher on uh, on television, that sort of thing. But you learn <laughs> that the highest share of self-proclaimed evangelicals actually found among Latinos. Yeah, that's correct. That's according to our our survey and our data that we looked at. We have sort of stereotypes or assumptions of evangelicals being, you know, either suburban white Americans, Anglo Americans, or mm. being rural Southern Americans, and that just simply is not the case. A large number of Hispanics self-report as evangelical. Well, now say more about this because I think that there is a stereotype that Latinos are still majority Catholic. Is that is that true? Uh, that's absolutely correct, but um, there has been quite a big uh, movement towards other uh, non-Catholic faiths. Uh, let's move on to, to point number two here of these three points I was, I was wanting to focus on. When it comes to politics, I guess most people would say a large number of white folks are conservative, while a larger number of uh, African Americans are liberal. And I suppose for some reason people assume, we're getting back to those assumptions, that Latinos who vote tend to vote uh, Democratic. Well, that data may, may be correct, but what's surprising is how large a chunk of Latinos are not committed to either party? 
Yeah, that's correct. And I think one of the things that happens is, um, so in a sense, we could argue that a large chunk of Latinos, at least according to the data we looked at, are independents and, and essentially in some ways up for grabs. And this is also complicated by the fact that the term Hispanic is a complicated term. We know that, for instance, Cuban Americans in parts of South Florida, mm-hmm. you know, parts of New Jersey are much more conservative Republican than maybe uh, Puerto Rican Latinos right. living in New York City mm-hmm. uh, or uh, Mexican Americans living in parts of the Southwest. So I think that that diversity within Hispanic Latino community also gives us this kind of political diversity resulting in this sort of large chunk of quote-unquote, undecided or independent Hispanic Latinos. Well, that suggests that uh, perhaps greater numbers of Latinos are up for grabs, as they say. Uh, Uh, Why is no one doing the grabbing? Well, I think that the two political parties, at least it's a conversation that both political parties are having. But I don't think that that either political party has tapped into this fully. I want to move on to that uh, point number three here. Uh, The uh, respondents were asked about marriage, abortion, uh, sexual preferences and and other topics that I suppose many have assumed in the past uh, uh, that they knew how Latinos felt about this in in a sort of general sense. But you are pointing out in this study that uh, Latinos and Hispanics are not a monolithic constituency that aligns easily along a progressive conservative continuum. Uh, Say more about that. Sure. Well, I think one of the things that we think is that uh, things don't change, that people's views, that people's opinions are are static. And we started this study several years ago. It's an ongoing project. But here's the thing. Those views on these sort of hot button issues are also subject to factors like our age, factors like levels of education. And in that sense, we see Hispanics, quote unquote, behaving in similar ways to, for instance, Anglo-Americans. And then we clearly see that younger Hispanic Latinos are much more progressive or liberal leading in terms of views towards same-sex marriage, Mm. even views towards abortion. Interesting, too, about the way that uh, millennialism is manifest here. Uh, Look at marriage, for example, and attitudes there. Uh, Yeah, there's no question. Uh, Younger Americans as a whole are maybe not prioritizing marriage. Hmm. It seems they're more interested in uh, their own upward mobility. And what stands to be seen is as these young people age, if they do fall into a pattern of high rates of marriage. But what we will definitely see and are already seeing as a result of this is that the age of marriage is getting much later. Dr. Gabriel Acevedo is a sociologist who teaches at St. Mary's University. He's also co-author of a report called Latinos in America, conclusions from one of the largest surveys ever conducted to learn more about Latinos in the U.S. Dr. Acevedo, thanks so much for speaking with us on the Texas Standard. I greatly appreciate you having me today, David. Have a great day. And you were listening to the Texas Standard. He's been listening to what Texans have to say about the news and other things going on uh, in social media land. It's our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. We've been keeping an eye on the funeral of George H.W. Bush in Houston. His family is present there. His uh, grandson, Texas Land Commissioner George P. Bush, was mm-hmm. eulogizing the 41st president, among several other speakers. And, and, you know, all week we've been hearing from friends and listeners who are sharing their uh, Bush stories. Here's a good one uh, via Twitter from Amy Davis. She tweets us that in 2010, I ran the Houston Marathon around mile 18, I noticed people high-fiving a man sitting in a chair in front of a church. 
I made my way over and saw it was former President Bush. Huh. I shook his hand and he wished me good luck. Such a nice guy. And just hearing uh, similar sort of uh, remembrances of Bush the people, uh, Bush the person rather, and also uh, people, you know, discussing and debating his legacy as president. So obviously, you know, this has just been kind of the big story uh, all week long. Yeah, of course, uh, six days on after his uh, passing. Uh, so many touching uh, uh, reflections during uh, the service at the uh, uh, service in Washington yeah. uh, yesterday. Yeah, I so much living history, were, just were all those presidents that. all lined up together. Mm-hmm. Also hearing from folks about a story in the news roundup, how that civil rights group is suing the Texas Department of Public Safety over its controversial driver responsibility yeah, program. Yeah, say, say more about that. I heard yeah, a little bit. Yeah, this is, uh, the, well, they're arguing it's unconstitutional, this driver responsibility program. That's the one that levies penalty surcharges on drivers who get ticketed in addition to the actual fines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on Facebook, Steve even Gautier says he got caught up in this about 10 years ago. They levied three or four of the surcharges on me. I had paid my original fines off three years earlier, and no one bothered to tell me about the surcharging. He says he got pulled over the night he lost his job and hauled off to jail, then taken to Galveston 20 miles away from his home. Wow. They just opened up the door the next day and let me out on the street. He says that his uh, family had to help him out or he wouldn't have been able to pay the fines. And uh, as we heard in the roundup, it, there seems to be some bipartisan consensus uh, at the Texas legislature for maybe doing away with this. Both a Republican and a Democratic senator have called for uh, its repeal coming up here in the next uh, legislature. Yeah, sort of puts people in a in a uh, uh, death spiral in a sense when it comes yeah. to trying to pay off those bills. Yeah, sort of snowballing effect there. Well, very quickly, I should mention Selena is trending. That's because HEB is out yet again with some limited edition HEB Selena bags. Pretty styling looking stuff. Raymond Want, he tweets us that the best part of getting one was everyone in the parking lot stopping to tell each other which lane still had the bags. People helping each other find them in the store. La Reina Selena brings us together, he says. Very well put. Very well put, Raymond. Siempre. Very attractive looking bag. Yeah, good looking bag. And I know they're putting them on eBay even as we speak. Alas, we're out of time for the big broadcast, but we're going to be back here tomorrow. We hope you will, too. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard crew, I'm David Brown, wishing you a terrific Thursday. Philanthropic support comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and the Hatton W. Sumners Foundation. R.I. Public Radio International.